This is Ann Arbor Stories. I'm Rich Reddy. For a town as old as Ann Arbor, it has surprisingly few ghost stories. But in the late 1950s, the congregation of the First Methodist Church in Ann Arbor was pretty convinced they had a ghost on their hands. Caretakers sometimes heard footsteps late at night, but never spotted anyone in the church. Boxes of crackers and leftovers from ladies' auxiliary potluck dinners went missing from time to time. Some blamed sticky-fingered Boy Scouts who met at the church weekly with their troop. Others told tales of the ghost. Matches, blankets, and pew cushions also disappeared over the years. What was the spirit's business? In June 1959, a church volunteer arriving before dawn to prepare for a banquet saw a shadowy figure standing in the kitchen. It wore a small hat, gloves, rumpled pants, and a dark shirt. The woman screamed and fled. Six police officers searched the church but found no sign of an intruder. It wasn't the first time the cops had visited First Methodist. They'd received calls to this address before, reporting prowlers around the property, shapes and sounds inside. But in all their searches, they didn't find a thing. The footsteps continued. Things continued to go missing. The church finally called the Sanford Security Agency and hired a nighttime security guard named William Edison to keep an eye on the place. Late in the evening on August 30th, 1959, not long on the job, Edison heard his first footsteps in the church. He called the cops, who showed up in the pre-dawn hours, and checked every room in the giant church. Patrolman Norman Olmsted and Richie Davis were the last on the scene. Once again, no one found evidence of anything natural or unnatural. But on the way out, Norm spotted a steel door at the top of a ladder. The patrolman climbed it and swung the door open onto a flat section of the roof above the north wing of the church. Across that roof was another door, this one leading to the rafters. The caretakers brought a key to the door, which they unlocked and carefully opened, the patrolmen training their flashlights on the 40-foot-long space. The sun wouldn't be up for another hour. One of the beams of light revealed a jar of instant coffee, a box of crackers, a makeshift bed. They stepped carefully on the boards and the rafters high above the church and found a makeshift home. The bed, belongings, and in the corner, tucked into a ball, was Chang Guangwu. Known as David to his friends and classmates, Chang to his parents back in Singapore. Officers Olmsted and Davis trained their lights in the corner, Davis unholstering his weapon and pointing it at the thing, which rose, put its hands up when asked. It looked feral. Long, uneven hair hanging off its head, shirtless, wearing a pair of filthy swim trunks. It glistened with sweat. It wore a wristwatch. Cheng Lim wasn't a ghost. He was a University of Michigan dropout. After he was arrested and taken to the station, Cheng told the police his tale, how he came to the United States from Singapore to get an education, sponsored by the same Methodist church he had haunted for four years, how he transferred from Albion College to the University of Michigan in 1952 and enrolled in the College of Engineering, got good grades, until 1954 when he didn't. Cheng had trouble in math and physics and at the end of the school year had failed multiple classes. He wanted to transfer into another program but his grades were too low. 
he feared he was on the verge of being expelled. Cheng had already taken out a number of loans, his funds were nearly dried up, and his part-time job as a janitor at the First Methodist Church wasn't making enough of a difference. He was too proud to accept more aid, and too humiliated to return to Singapore. So many people helped me, Cheng said later. I failed them all. He didn't return to classes that fall and gave up his living quarters. Staying off campus in places like the Arboretum, the railway station, city parks, and using his key to sneak into the First Methodist Church. He knew the church inside out and found it easy to slip in and out with his key, taking a bite to eat here, spending a rainy night indoors there. The only thing that brought Chen out in public was his beloved Michigan Wolverines. He loved college football and never missed a game, buying tickets to home games, catching away games on the radio. On October 8, 1955, Cheng Lim sat in the stands with 97,000 other fans, watched Benny Oosterbaum's Wolverines beat an unbeatable Army team 26-2 on an unseasonably warm fall day. Following the game, no one's quite sure what happened, what made Cheng go from on the lam to full-on ghost. But he walked out of Michigan Stadium, fans streaming to their cars and into the streets. He bypassed downtown, keeping his head down just in case, and headed for a secluded section of the Huron River. There, he told officials, he tossed his passport and some clothes into the river, faking a suicide, and packed everything but the clothes on his back and an earphone radio into one big suitcase, left it in a locker at the bus station. It was dark now. No one saw him walk up Huron towards the First Methodist, unlock the door, slip inside, climb up the ladder, open the metal door, climb out onto the roof, unlock one final door, and hide out in the rafters, 12 hours before the Sunday congregation would arrive. For four years, for four years, Cheng lived in the rafters. He never spoke to a soul, and he never left the church, ever. Until that August morning, in the presence of officers Olmsted and Davis, with the sun below the horizon and his hands cuffed behind his back. Four years of foraging for food, at the mercy of church function leftovers and the odd box of snacks. Which wasn't bad. He ate well, that we know. Cheng weighed 10 pounds more when he left the church than when he arrived. After he was arrested and examined by physicians from the University Health Service, they concluded that he'd been receiving adequate amounts of vitamin A, C, and D. His muscle tone was good, and his teeth were in fair shape. Cheng hadn't neglected his body in seclusion. He brushed his teeth using the ends of kitchen matches and baking soda. He jumped rope late at night or early in the morning, when he knew no one was in the building. He shaved regularly with two sharpened pennies and cut his own hair, bathed in the church bathroom. He read books and magazines by the light of a tiny Christmas bulb taken from the church tree, listened on his earphone radio, catching newscasts and rooting for the Wolverines during Michigan football games. He also rooted against the Tigers from the spring and into the fall. The Tigers annoyed me because of their optimism, Chang said. Each spring they said this was the year, but it never was. Chang also slowly went mad. His living quarters were basically outdoors. In the rafters of the A-frame building, a space not tall enough for him to stand erect. Temperatures easily reaching 100 degrees on hot summer days, dropping below freezing during the winter months. Snow and icy wind whipped through gaps in the roof during storms. 
He carried as much water into his hideout as he could each night, for fear that any movement during the day would reveal him. Paranoid, Chang would lie still all day long, afraid to make a single move, lest a board creak or a footstep become audible. Time was all he had. Chang wound his wristwatch every day to know exactly what time it was. In the years that followed, it started to lose its function, but Chang reset it every night, creeping downstairs and matching it with the clocks in the church. He also screamed. Literally screamed. There was a closet downstairs that, when the door was closed, was nearly soundproof. Some nights he'd creep into the closet, close the door, and sing at the top of his lungs. Some nights he'd yell and thrash and scream to hold the breakdown at bay. The nights when no one was in the church weren't bad, but the days were very hard. Chen got careless. He wanted to get caught. Like the morning he was spotted by the volunteer in the kitchen, like the night he made too much noise and alerted the church's new patrolman. In jail, he learned some bad news right away. Chang's father had died of cancer months earlier, before having a chance to complete a planned trip to Ann Arbor to look for his missing son. Everyone looked for Chang when he vanished. Classmates, university officials, church members. The Hurons swallowed his passport and clothing, which were never found. Immigration officials, too, were also looking for him. After his ordeal, Chang expected the worst and instead received all the help he would ever need. The university is quick to accept him into the fold, re-enrolling him and placing him in the literary college. He received letters from across the country and around the world, many of them containing checks or offering financial assistance. A Texas oil man sent money. A retired businesswoman in Pennsylvania and a Brooklyn school teacher each sent checks. The church too offered to finance his education and pay his expenses. The university gave Cheng a new identity to escape the nationwide attention. They changed his name, gave him a new haircut, put him up in a safe house close to campus with an unlisted address and phone number. Weeks later, he was back in class, a junior studying history. After a time, he said, no one seemed to recognize him. He mostly got good grades, good enough to graduate with a bachelor's degree on June 17, 1961 listening to a commencement address from Edward R. Murrow. After graduation, Cheng's trail goes a little cold. A short newspaper article mentions him on December 5th, 1961. Typical Ann Arbor news clickbait. A small item reporting that Cheng was hit by a car and slightly injured while riding his bicycle near the corner of Stadium and Industrial. His address is given, and he's listed as a graduate student at the University of Michigan but every other media account mentions him returning to Singapore in 1961. He never married, and he kept his head down the rest of his life. Sometime in 1986, Cheng suffered a fatal heart attack in Singapore, dying at the age of 55. The one American Cheng kept in contact with after returning to Singapore was Reverend Eugene Ransom, director of the Methodist Ministry at the University of Michigan. Ransom and Cheng corresponded off and on after Cheng's graduation with Ransom occasionally asking for details of Cheng's life. His ghost was always evasive in his responses. Ransom never quite learned much about Cheng Lim after he left Ann Arbor, and that's probably how Cheng would have liked it, even if he never missed sending a Christmas card to his old sponsor, Eugene Ransom.